upon the nations by the Perthes. In our session yesterday, we dealt with the book of Emmanuel and completed an outline of it to the end of the 12th chapter. Today we commence a new session, as we have it here, the day of Yahweh upon the nations. And we've outlined that uh, those uh, chapters in the following summary. So that throughout this area of uh, Isaiah's prophecy, we have the burden of Babylon, the burden of Philistia, of Moab, of Damascus, right down to the burden of Tyre. But right throughout that section of the prophecy, you will note references to the day of Yahweh. They are continuous throughout these chapters that we're now going to briefly look at. And they remind us that it is the day of his vindication, when he is going to be vindicated in judgment upon those nations. And in the days of Isaiah, the Assyrian power was used as the rod of Yahweh. Not merely Sennacherib, but other of the kings of Assyria were used as his rod against the people of the Middle East. And accordingly they were punished and they were reduced in power, as Isaiah outlines it in these chapters before us. And at least 18 times throughout these chapters we have references to the day of Yahweh. Now all of this, though based upon the past, will be fulfilled in the future. And this is constantly emphasised throughout this section of Isaiah's prophecy. It's not exclusively in the past. In every occasion almost, reference is made to the future. So that we can study any one of these prophecies and we can find those prophecies have an implication to our particular day. And therefore we are awaiting the development of these things as we await the manifestation of the day of Yahweh in the days in which we live. Let us take one or two of these prophecies and see how they are couched in the future. We'll take the one in relationship to uh, Babylon. In Isaiah's prophecy concerning Babylon, he points out how that Babylon would be destroyed, how that it would be completely and utterly overthrown. And the prophecy of Isaiah has had a remarkable fulfilment. It's considered one of the wonders of the prophetic word the manner in which Babylon uh, has answered to the requirements of Bible prophecy. For example, in the 30th chapter of uh, Isaiah, and at verse 19, we read that Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But the wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. And the wild beasts of the island shall cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, and her time is near to come, and her day shall not be prolonged. Now historic Babylon answers exactly to the requirements of that prophecy. In the city of Babylon we have one of the greatest cities of antiquity. 
a city that Nebuchadnezzar built for perpetuity. Nebuchadnezzar built that city so he thought that it would last throughout the ages. But here we have the declaration of Isaiah the prophet something like 170 years before it was fulfilled saying that the city should be completely and utterly overthrown and never be rebuilt. Now that's an amazing thing because Babylon was situated upon the banks of the Euphrates in a very appropriate place for a city. You can go there now and see it and you can see right around Babylon today the area is propitious for a city. And there we have the river Euphrates running not far from the city even to this day. And yet here the prophet is saying that that great and mighty city that would be comparable to New York today would be utterly and completely overthrown. Not only that, he goes into great details. He says it will never be dwelt in from generation to generation. And that's a staggering thing to say when you consider the size of that uh, uh, city. Fancy anyone saying that of New York or of uh, London. They might say that it may be devastated by fire, but would they be prepared to say it will never be inhabited from generation to generation, that it will be completely wiped out? Even in the uh, holocaust of the Nazi regime, we realized that London would rise again, and they boasted of that. But here we have Babylon, that in its day and generation was comparable to any mighty city today to be completely and utterly overthrown, never to be inhabited again. And not only that, but the Arabian will not pitch his tent there, said Isaiah. And to this very day, the Arabs have a superstition about that place. And they don't like to encamp overnight. They'll go there in the day, but they don't like to place their tents there overnight. The Arabian shall not pitch his tent there Neither shall shepherds make their fold there. And it's an amazing thing that in great detail that prophecy has had complete fulfillment. And it vindicates the word of Yahweh to us. It shows that when we base our life upon the word of God, we base it upon a very firm foundation. A foundation that is witnessed by history and a foundation that is established by the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. No one should be able to shake our confidence in this book. Not only do we see this, of course, but we're living contemporary with wonderful fulfillment of Bible prophecy that is just as miraculous as we have it in relation to the city of Babylon here. But again, as I said before, the prophecy does not only relate to the past, it relates to the future. And those very words that I have quoted from verse 21 onwards, those very words you will find cited in Revelation chapter 18 of verse 2 and they're applied to Babylon the Great. So the terms of this prophecy that relate to historic Babylon also relate to spiritual Babylon or mystical Babylon of the book of Revelation. So the prophecy has an application to our own day. In chapter 14 of this of Isaiah, the prophecy sweeps on in relation to Babylon. For Yahweh will yet have mercy on Jacob, and will yet choose Israel, and set them in their own land, and strangers shall be joined unto them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. And the people shall take them, and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of Yahweh for servants and handmaids, and they shall take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. So we're right now in the future, aren't we? No doubt about that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14. Those words have never yet been completely fulfilled. He has not yet had mercy on Jacob. 
He has not chosen Israel and set them in their own band and made strangers joined unto them. That is not yet fulfilled. But it will be fulfilled just as certainly as Babylon was overthrown. And we read, as we uh, continue on, we read these important words. And it shall come to pass in the day that Yahweh will give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from the hard bondage wherein thou wast made to serve, that then thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased. Yahweh hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. Now notice that this is a proverb to be taken up by the and overthrew Babylon. And when Sargon came to rule over Babylon, he proclaimed himself to be the vicar of the gods of Babylon. So the Assyrian, you see, linked himself with the spiritual uh, teachings, apostasy of Babylon. And there you had in the Assyrian the military power and in Babylon at that time the spiritual power. And uh, the Assyrian aligned himself with a Babylonian like that and the Assyrian was to be overthrown. And so likewise was the Babylonian. And that is really what is taking place today as we see the development of the Roman apostasy and of the Russian power as well. Now you see, in this particular prophecy, it sweeps on to speak about the overthrow of the Assyrian. And then we have these words in verse 32. What shall one then answer the messengers of the nation? And the answer is that the Yahweh hath found of Zion, and the poor of his people shall trust in it. So you see, on the background of the past, we see the prophecy of the future. We see Babylon overthrown. We see the Assyrian destroyed in the land. And we see a situation arising where the Lord Jesus Christ is reigning in Zion, and we have messengers of the nations coming to him to inquire as to what is the reason of all this. And the answer is that Yahweh hath chosen Zion. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, when he sets up his power in Jerusalem, the first thing that he is going to do after that is to send forth an ultimatum to the nations. And that ultimatum to the nations will call upon them to submit unto him. And of course here we have some of the messengers going from the nations back to Zion to inquire as to what is the situation there. And the answer is given that Yahweh hath founded Zion, and the poor of the people shall trust themselves in it. So you see, here in this prophecy of Babylon, the people of Isaiah's time could look forward to the time when Babylon would be overthrown. A man like Daniel that was in the city of Babylon realized, realized that as far as the, 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 the city was concerned, it would be overthrown. But we too, in our day and generation, await for the overthrow of Babylon. Not historic Babylon, but mystical Babylon, Babylon the Great, that is rising in power at this particular time. So you have it right throughout these chapters. You can take any one of these chapters, any one of those subjects, and you can study it in that relationship on the background of the past and the background of the future because the past is always foreshadowing the future. In the 17th chapter of Isaiah and at verse 1, you have the overthrow of Damascus the burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city and it shall be a ruinous heap. And it was true that the Assyrian came against Damascus and overthrew the uh, power of Syria at that particular time. 
But when we come to verse 7, we see that that is only foreshadowing what we can expect in the future. At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. And he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. So there's going to be a vast change in the attitude of nations and of men. And they're going to turn away from their religion and they're going to be joined, of course, unto the truth in that day. A man shall look to his maker and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. So that what happened in the past is a mere foreshadow of what is going to happen in the future. You had a burden of Egypt again in the 19th chapter. And in verses 18 and 19, we read concerning the future. As a matter of fact, in this 19th chapter of Isaiah, you have the work of Jesus Christ in the invasion of Egypt at his return. And notice these statements found in verse 16, in that day. Verse 18, in that day. Verse 19, in that day. Verse 21, in that day. Verse 23, in that day. Verse 24, in that day. See the repetition of that. It's going to happen in that day. And that day is a day when we read in verse 24, when Israel shall be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, who Yahweh of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. Now sometimes this is a problem to some because they wonder what about the rest of the nations. But you see, when you consider Egypt, Assyria and Israel, at that particular time it, compri it comprised the whole world. That involved the whole of the nations. They were all involved either in the Egyptian alliance or in the Assyrian alliance. And there was Israel in the middle of the land. So you see, on the terms of Isaiah's day, that comprised the whole world. Today, of course, we've got Russia and we've got Europe and we've extended down to Australia and New Zealand in the south. And therefore, you see, but on the terms of this prophecy, that would involve all those nations. So we see here a world at peace with a highway moving out from all nations, linking them together around the principles of the worship that will be assented and established in the land of Israel. So you see, again on the background of the past, we have foreshadowed the future. And it's very interesting to see what is going to happen in that day, as far as Egypt is concerned. See in verse 18 that there are going to be five cities that are going to speak the language of Canaan. And they're going to swear to Yahweh of hosts. And here we have these five cities here being centers of instruction in the land of Egypt that the people might be instructed concerning the truth. You remember what Zephaniah says, that there's going to be a pure language given to the world that they might serve Yahweh with one consent. And they're going to understand the things of Yahweh on that day. And they're going to recognize the truth that is revealed therein. They won't be like Pharaoh of Egypt who said, Who is Yahweh? They will then, because of the instruction concerning these matters, understand the things of God. So in Egypt, there will be five cities, five being the number of grace, and they shall speak the language of Canaan, they shall educate the people in the principles of truth. One, we are told, shall be called the city of destruction. 
and it could commemorate the point where the Lord Jesus Christ's force will overthrow those of Gog that will be centred in Egypt at that particular time. In verse 19, we read that there will be an altar established in the land of Egypt at that time and a pillar at the border thereof. These will be to remind them of the need to worship in Jerusalem. There will not be altars for sacrifice. There will be only one altar for sacrifice in that day and that will be in Jerusalem. But there will be altars and pillars in different parts of the world to remind people of their need of, of, of um, worship. Much the same as when the two and a half tribes, when they went back home after the conquest of Canaan, they built a pillar at the border, remember, and they told uh, Joshua that this was to remind them that they should worship at Jerusalem. And so we have a repetition of that in, at this point here. And so you see in that day, verse 21, the Egyptians shall do sacrifice and oblation. They shall go up to Jerusalem for that very purpose. In that day, we read in verse 22, he will smite Egypt, he will smite and heal it, and they shall turn to Yahweh. Not return, the word can be written, turn. And he shall be entreated of them and heal them. And then we have that wonderful highway that will lead the people from all parts of the land right back to the land of Israel and right back to the worship of Almighty God in that part. So on the background of the past, the future is forecast by uh, Isaiah the prophet. You have in the 21st chapter and that verses 13 to 15 a prophecy in relation to Arabia. And we read there, the burden upon Arabia. In the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye travelling companies of Dedanim. Now these are very strange words because there are no forests in Arabia. So it suggests a vast change in the character of the land when the desert shall blossom as the rose. So in the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye travelling companies of Dedanim. And again the word Arabia in the revised version is at evening. So in the forest at evening shall ye lodge. And it's speaking of the evening time of human affairs. And at evening time of human affairs, there's going to be a vast change in Arabia. Instead of it being a desert like it is today, it's going to flourish. There are going to be forests there. And the Arabians are going to dwell there. They're no longer going to be nomads like they are today, Bedouins. They're going to lodge in the forests, in the centres of Arabia. And they're going to be changed in that day, even in their character. They're going to leave off their hostility towards Israel and be established in their own section of the land at that particular time. So that we have a picture of Arabia at the evening time, at the beginning of the millennium, flourishing once again with forests there and its people there established therein, no longer the nomad Bedouin of today. And we have a remarkable change in verse 14 because the inhabitants of, of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. The word prevented, wherever you read it almost in the Bible, doesn't mean prevent. It used to mean that in ancient times. The words changed it means. Now it means they give it to him. They, they, they supply it. So they brought water to him that was thirsty. They supplied their bread to him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, from the grievousness of war. 
And it's speaking of a time when the Assyrians swept down and, and the people sought refuge. And again, when Russia will sweep down and the people will seek refuge. And there they will find that these people that once were so antagonistic to them are no longer such, but they will assist them in that day when the Russians shall sweep down to take a spoil and to take a prey. But right into the future, we have the picture of the Arabian there converted to Christ as he will be. And as you have him in the 60th chapter of Isaiah. And this is a very key point as far as prophecy is concerned because it speaks not of the overthrow of the, the Arab as the Edomite will be overthrown, but is of his conversion to Christ. So in the 60th chapter of Isaiah, verse 6, The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of Yahweh. The flocks of Kedah shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth, Arab tribes, shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. So there we have the conversion of the Arabs in that day. Again, when we come to the 23rd chapter, we have the judgment upon Tyre. And of course Tyre suffered at that particular time. The bird of, of Tyre, verse 1, Howl ye ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no entering in, for the land of Kittim it is revealed to thee. When Nebuchadnezzar came against Tyre, of course Nebuchadnezzar swept the place clean, and the Tyrians had to re-establish their power in the island about a mile off the coast. But the judgment upon Tyre would be absolute. And we are told in verse 6, or they are told, Pass ye over to Tarshish, hell ye inhabitant of the isle. And so the Tyrians went over to Tarshish. And from point to point, the mercantile marine power of the world changed from, from Tyre to Carthage, from Carthage to Vienna, from Vienna to Spain, from Spain to Britain. And so finally, the mantle of Tyre passed over to Tarshish and was there established on the Isle of Britain. And prophecy was fulfilled. But today, you know, Britain has fallen in the scale of nations. Ever since Britain turned against the people of Israel, it has fallen in the scale of nations. And we are told in verse 15, it shall come to pass in that day, that Tyre shall be forgotten seventy years, according to the days of one king. After the end of seventy years shall Tyre sing as an harlot. And it's a remarkable thing, you know, if we take perhaps the point of, uh, of uh, Israel, uh, uh, England's greatness, if we take it perhaps at about 1917 when the Balfour Declaration was declared and the way was open for the Jewish people to uh, return to the land, we add 70 years to that, we come to our own time. And it's rather remarkable, I think, that through this Falkland uh, issue that Britain is beginning to rise again in the scale of nations. Now it does suggest that here, that after a period of 70 years, that that could very well be the case. And she is going to, uh, as we have it expressed here, she will then sing again as a harlot, and that she may be remembered. She will rise in the scale of the nations until finally, of course, she as all other nations will be reduced by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 18, Whatever you say about the seven years period, in verse 18, we're right into the kingdom. And see the vast change now 
in this power that is noted for its commercial aggrandizement. Her merchandise and her hire shall be holiness unto Yahweh. It shall not be treasured nor laid up, for her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before Yahweh to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. So there's going to be a vast change in the economics of the world at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where you have merchandise and hire, it will not be as it is today, treasured and laid up, awaiting a rise in price, not like it is today when conditions are so evil economically throughout the world, but instead it will be holiness unto Yahweh. It shall not be laid up, it shall not, but it shall be for them that dwell before Yahweh to eat sufficiently and for durable clothing. So you see, whatever merchandise is used in the age to come, it will have one policy, holiness to Yahweh. You imagine if you had to go down to the supermarket here and instead of being told that that is the cheapest and best one in all the land, and that's a lie, you had up instead of that, this is holiness to Yahweh. And everything that was done as far as that is concerned was for the benefit of him. Of course, you wouldn't have supermarkets and you won't have great industrial undertakings. You'll have people sitting under their vine and fig tree. You'll have exchanged instead of, as we have it today, commercial interests. That'll gone for good. There'll be no need for that. These abominations that you're flying from country to country called jumbo jets, they'll sink them to the bottom of the sea, I hope. And the, the rest of that life will be in a more leisurely basis where people can think about the things of God instead of being crushed up in a chair looking like this all day and night and trying to look around the bend and seeing what you can get a decent cup of tea, which you don't get anyway. So, you see, that will be altered. And the whole of life will be designed to the benefit of humanity and to the glory of the Father, every aspect of life. And it's wonderful to contemplate, you know. You can go right through Isaiah's prophecy and find the different ways of life that are going to be established in the land. You know, that's a wonderful theme for study, to just go through and, and, and assess the vast changes that are going to take place when the Lord Jesus Christ rules. Here's one of them. And you can find many like that that will show you the difference that is going to be established in the land at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to the 24th chapter. That ends that one. Yes. So we bring this one back on now. And we haven't got one for chapter 24. I've lost it. So uh, we have here Israel chastened, purified, glorified. 24 to 27. I think you ought to change the title of that if you want to make a title of it. And I think you would be better if you would put something about the spiritual revival that's going to take place because those chapters are dealing with the spiritual revival. True enough, Israel is chased and purified and glorified. But if you look carefully at those chapters, as I have done this morning, if you look carefully at those chapters, you will find it's really the spiritual revival that's going to take place which is the subject of that particular chapter. And in the 24th chapter, you have revealed the Israel of God. In the 25th chapter, just have a look at it. Look at the first verse. O Yahweh, thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name. Thanksgiving for his help. In the 26th chapter, you have the overthrow of Babylon the Great. We'll probably look at that. And at the 27th chapter, 
you have the complete establishment of Israel, both spiritual and material, or, 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 or fleshly, whatever you like. If you just briefly have a look at that uh, 27th chapter before we go back to the 24th, notice this. Remember we dealt with the parable of the vineyard before. Now here we have the vineyard again in this 27th chapter. We have the song of the vineyard in this particular chapter. And in that vineyard we have here, you have a flourishing vineyard. Not like the other one bringing forth wild grapes, but a flourishing vineyard here from verse 2 onwards, in that day sing ye unto her, a vineyard of red wine, I, Yahweh, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. Now you compare that with the one in the fifth chapter. I'll break it down, I'll let the wild beasts take in, and they can eat the wild grapes. There's a vast change, you see, here. And you see this vineyard in verse 6, he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root, Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the land of the world with fruit. What a vast change. So you've got to take both those parables of the vineyard and compare them together. We haven't got time to do it. That's a joy and a pleasure that you can have in the leisure of your homes. But it is a very wonderful principle. So that you see, I see this father that Israel chased and purified and glorified I see it as the spiritual revival of the age to come where the grand purpose of God has brought the consummation as far as that is concerned. Now we go back to chapter 24. First of all, we have calamities upon the land. What land? The land of Israel, of course. Calamities upon the land. Yahweh maketh the earth empty and maketh it waste and turneth it upside down and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Yahweh maketh the earth empty and maketh it waste and turneth it upside down and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Israel after the flesh. The land figuratively turned upside down. The people scattered into all parts of the land. Why? The earth, verse 5, was defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Why? Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse that devoured the earth. It's speaking of this earth here. The earth of Israel. And the people are ca cast out and it's subject to a political earthquake and it's turned them all upside down and flung them out of the land. That's what happened in AD 70 and onwards. And so you see, the earth is represented as mourning there. And certainly at mourn. There's an element of fertility brought back to that land today. When you move up and down that land, you marvel at the beauty of it all. I've been there, however, right back 1953. And in 1953, you saw very little fertility in the land then. It was very, very arid indeed. And before that, uh, going back beyond that period of time, that land was very, very arid, exactly as we have it set forth here. So here in the early parts of the chapter, we have the calamities upon the land with the result that the inhabitants, the Jews after the flesh, are driven out of the land. It's speaking of the dispersion of Israel. 
Now, verse 13. Here New Zealand comes into the picture. And thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, that is the Gentiles, that word people is in the plural in the Hebrew, and when the word's in the plural, it's invariably the Gentiles. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the peoples, there shall be among the peoples, among the Gentiles, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. Not very many, you see. The shaking of an olive tree, a few berries come down. The gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. And you will understand that as far as Israel is concerned, once the Jews had gone through their vines, there were very little gleaning grapes left upon those vines. Not when the Jews had finished with the harvest. So it means a very, very few people. Now read that verse again. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land of Palestine, among the Gentiles, because the word people is in the plural in the Hebrew, and it's invariably for the Gentiles when it's in the plural, it's the word I mean, there shall be, among the Gentiles, there shall be the shaking of an olive as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. And it's speaking of Israel after the Spirit. It's the ecclesia established among the Gentiles as foreshadowed by Isaiah's prophecy. They shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of Yahweh, they shall cry aloud from the sea, from Gentile lands, or from the west. Because the sea was always the west as far as the Israel is concerned. Because when they spoke of the sea, they spoke of the Mediterranean. So to them the sea was the west. It was the word for west. So you see, in any case, it's the land of the Gentiles. Therefore, not wherefore, therefore, therefore glorify Yahweh in the fires, even the name of Yahweh Elohim of Israel in the isles of the sea. Now what he is telling us is this, that when Israel is in dispersion, when they're driven out of their land, there will be among the Gentiles and a shaking of an olive tree, a few of gleaning grapes when the vintage is done, who will lift up their voice for the majesty of Yahweh and cry aloud from the sea. They will glorify Yahweh in the fires. But that word fires is the word Urim, U-R-I-M. You remember the Thummim and the Urim and it speaks of the fullness and the lights? Remember the Urim that shone forth from the breastplate of the high priest? That's the word. And the Urim that shone forth from the breastplate of the high priest was the manifestation of the glory of Yahweh. That's what it was, shining forth from those gems. So here we have a few among the Gentile nations, the ecclesias there, glorifying Yahweh as the lights shining forth with the manifestation of of the uh, deity at a time where darkness is covering the earth when the people of Israel are in dispersion and on all sides people are not having anything to do with the things of Yahweh he looks down upon this troubled world and he sees little ecclesias here and there and it rejoices his heart because there they are glorifying him as lights the lights of the world reflecting back the glory of, of Yahweh even the name of Yahweh Elohim of Israel in the isles of the sea. When uh, we come over to Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives us an exhortation as to what we should do in that regard. And he says this in Philippians chapter 2 
and verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, and this is one of the little ecclesias in the Gentile world, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I might rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. So the appeal of the Apostle Paul to the brethren of uh, Philippi, one of the ecclesias among the Gentiles, was that they should shine as lights in the world in the midst of the dark and degenerate age, that there should be light reflecting the glory of Yahweh, the manifestation of Almighty God in the midst of the darkness of the age at that particular time. And there we have the prophecy here that that would be the case in Isaiah's words in verse 24. Now Isaiah goes on to say that though that will be the case, they will be subjected to pressure. The ecclesia would be subjected to pressure. So he says in verse 16, From the uttermost parts of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. But I said, I said, My leanness, my leanness, he's in pain as he observes what's going on, as he sees the vision before him, he feels pain and anguish. Why? Because there's treacherous dealers and they're dealing treacherously. Yea, they're dealing very treacherously. So he sees the uprise of the apostasy, you see. And as he looks upon that, he feels the agony of it all. He feels the pain of it. And he says, Oh, my leanness, my leanness, woe unto me. As he sees the result of these treacherous dealers who are undermining the principles of the truth and destroying it. And so you see that Ecclesia now is under pressure as Israel was under pressure too. And you know what Peter says in the second of Peter chapter 2? There were false teachers among them and there'll be false teachers among you. And Peter is predicting that. As there were false teachers among the Israel after the flesh, there'll be false teachers among you. And there's a need for each one of us to recognize our need to understand this book so that we know full well that when false teaching arises that we can counter it with a thus saith the Lord. It's a responsibility that rests upon every individual, not upon leaders of ecclesias, every individual. Because if every one of us are strengthened in the things of God, the treacherous dealers cannot do anything to us. It is that that is going to sustain us. And you know, even apart from false doctrine or anything like that, the very pressures of the world are such today that we need a counteracting pressure within to hold it at bay. And that must come from within. And it's the responsibility of us, everyone, as individuals, to build ourselves up in that way. That we, as an individual, can resist any pressure that comes upon us. It doesn't need to be a profound understanding of the Word of God. I don't mean that at all. Yeah, but it does have to be an understanding of the Word of God. And we must be drawn to that Word and come to love that Word and come to love Yahweh that has called us to His truth. That must reach forth to every one of us. Ecclesias can help and Ecclesias should help. 
but the responsibility rests upon individuals. Otherwise, individuals will be taken away. Remember when the people of Israel were struggling up the valley of Rephidim and Amalek attacked them. Amalek attacked who? He attacked the stragglers. And they picked those stragglers off one by one. And that's what happens to the truth. So that in any ecclesia, there must be a responsibility towards every member of that ecclesia. And each member of that ecclesia must try as far as possible to build himself up in this book. And that is done in the simple things of the word, not the profound things. It's done in understanding the simple basic principles of the truth. And as we do that within the ecclesia, as we take that within our homes, as we teach our children the same things, so we are building up that resistance that is going to stand at, uh, 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 and resist the world at large, both within ourselves and our families, as we do that. And there's a need. The reason why Isaiah could look upon that scene in vision and say, Oh my goodness, and, and uh, woe unto me, is because he felt for others. And if we're worth anything in the truth, we feel for one another. We're not untouched by what happens to others. We should extend ourselves that we might help one another to the kingdom of God. That's fellowship. When I'm in need, someone comes and helps me. That's fellowship. And I'm drawn to them and I feel the power of the uh, impact of the word of God then when that happens to me, as it has happened. And therefore, you see, there's a need of us, as he saw the need there, there's a need of us to recognize the responsibilities resting upon us as far as that is concerned. And now leaving that theme, he looks at the world at large. He looks at the world that you're seeing today. And see that world in verse 17 onwards, the political world about us? Fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall come to pass that he that fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into a pit. And he that cometh out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. So he pictures the world as an animal, the animal that's being pursued. And that animal is fearful because it's not quite certain what's pursuing it. So it runs away and it falls down into the pit. And it tries to get out of the pit. And as it tries to get out of the pit, it puts its paw in the snare. And that's the finish of the animal. In other words, there's nothing it can do. It doesn't understand the, the one that is pursuing it. It's full of fear. It's going from one point to the other. But there is no answer to the problem that faces it. As the Lord Jesus Christ said, there shall be upon the earth the stress of nations with perplexity. You've got it in New Zealand. We've got it in Australia. They've got it in America. They've got it in uh, England. They've got it in Europe. The whole world's like that. And there we have the prophecy there. The prophecy that would tell us that Mr. Fraser is hopeless when it comes to solving the problems of Australia. I don't know who's in charge of New Zealand, if anyone's in charge. But uh, the, the same problem is there. You see, fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee. The earth is utterly broken down politically. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it and it shall fall and not rise again. There we have the state of the world at that particular time. You know, in the Hebrew, the, uh, the verse 19, and that's very graphic, 
It goes something like this. The earth breaketh, breaketh. The earth crasheth, crasheth. The earth tottereth, tottereth. The earth staggereth, staggereth. Like a drunken man. And that's where you are today as far as the world at large is concerned. The world's like that today. doesn't matter where you go, you find it that way. Everywhere the same way. You might think economic conditions are bad in this country. You go to Canada and see what they're like there. They're much worse than here. And it doesn't matter where you go in all the world today, you find this problem, and that problem is there. And that's the world outside, while the ecclesias in uh, developing within the conditions such as that. It shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And then finally in verse 23, the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when Yahweh of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. The moon shall be like that and uh, the sun shall be ashamed when that shall take place in that day. So you see, there is confidence in the hope of the future. And we have that in verse 25. O Yahweh, thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And here is the praise of, to him in the day when the moon shall be confounded, and Yahweh of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Here's another song of praise. And imagine us, if we're gathered before the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've been granted life eternal, and all our strivings are at an end, and we see the glory of the kingdom as we never could understand it in the days of our flesh. And now there is given unto us the glorious reward of eternal life. What shall we say? O Yahweh, thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels are all, thy faithfulness, and they are truth. Verse 4, For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. And you've got that storm in the previous chapter, haven't you? Verse 8, He shall swallow up death in victory, and the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people will he take away from off the earth, for Yahweh hath spoken it. And in that day it shall be said, Lo, this is our Elohim. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is Yahweh. We will see this, the, the Son in all his glory. We will see the manifestation of the Father in the heavens. We will be glad to rejoice in his salvation. And then in the 26th chapter, dealing likewise with the spiritual revival of the age to come, in the 26th chapter, you have, In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, his mind has stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And now compare that with verse 5. For he bringeth down them that dwell on high. The lofty city he layeth it low. He layeth it low even to the ground. He bringeth it even to the dust. 
that foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Two mighty cities there, a strong city of verse 1 and the lofty city of verse 5. And the strong city of verse 1 is going to wage war in that day on the lofty city of verse 5. And the inhabitants of the strong city of verse 1 are the poor and the needy and the just and the upright of verses 6 and 7. And the strong city of verse 1 is the heavenly Jerusalem. And the lofty city of verse 5 is Babylon the Great. And here we have the final manifestation of power and strength of the gleaning grapes and the shaking of an olive tree. The things that seem so weak today in comparison with the mighty manifestations of power on behalf of, in, in the world about us. The truth seems so poor today. Yet here we have the great finale when as a strong city it will overthrow that lofty city and lieth it low even to the ground. And you see in this, uh, this 26th chapter of the Isaiah you have the, the, the way in which that is going to be, be accomplished. How that the people of the city that today are accounted as nothing in the eyes of the world will finally overthrow the mightiest power in all the earth. You know, when you come to the second chapter of Daniel and you read about the stone power that's going to hit that image upon the feet, it's a stone that's cut out of the mountain without hands. But that stone becomes, it grows and becomes a mountain on its own account and fills the whole earth. It's only a small stone at the beginning, but it becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. And that's really the symbol of the kingdom of God. Small in the estimation of the things of, of the flesh, small in the estimation of men about us, but destined to overthrow all the affairs of mankind and establish in this earth a, a, a system of things that is going to be coextensive with the whole earth. And we can, you know, follow in, in the way of the world and esteem these things of least importance. They're like the little stone to us. Let's make them the mountain of our life. And let's make them assume the greatest principle in all our existence so that we are not led away by the folly of the world outside. So we have it in these chapters here and uh, the verses 9 to 12 you have the constant prayer of Isaiah and the constant prayer of those who are like him. If we take verse 8. Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Yahweh, have we waited for thee. This is what's going to be said to the Lord Jesus Christ in that day. We have waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. Or as the RSV gives it, thy memorial name is the desire of our soul. Thy memorial name is the desire of our soul. With my soul have I desired thee in the night, yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. And he says, let fire be showed to the, righteous, uh, the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of Yahweh. And that's flesh. And it's always been the same. 
it was the same as regard to the people of Israel. And it is the same today. But he goes on to say, Yahweh, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see. They'll be made to see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. And so in the concluding parts of this particular chapter, dealing with this particular section of the prophecy, in these parts here, we have him speaking of the resurrection. Verse 19, Thy dead shall live, with my dead body shall they arise. Awaken, sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out her dead. And it speaks of them being closeted together with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then finally coming out that they might punish the world for its iniquity. And of course, you have then, in verse 27, the final picture, because in that day, Yahweh with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan. What remains of Gentile power throughout the whole of Europe? And in that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. And we have that vineyard that we mentioned before. A vineyard now that springs forth and goes and flourishes and fills the whole world with its fruit. And of course, as being part of that vineyard, in being part of that vineyard, we hope in that day to be associated with this work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks, during the period of this uh, chapter, it speaks of the pruning of that vine, how Yahweh pruned it. He cared for it and he pruned it. And you know, we are sometimes subjected to that. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the uh, Gospel according to John, in the... Uh, in his uh, comments concerning the vineyard in verse in chapter 15 he says I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit and I think we need to bear that well in mind that if we are part of that vine we are there we must produce fruit the vine is useless if it doesn't produce fruit it's no use as a, as for building. The wood is no use even for uh, heating. It just flares up and it's over. It gives no heat when it's set on fire. So the only useful... ...will be subjected to the pruning process of the husbandman. That pruning process is good for the soul. It humbles us, it improves the fruit that we're going to reveal to the glory of the Father. And so you see, that is what he is telling us there, that every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth us, that it may bring forth more fruit. And then he says, ye are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. And it is the word that will prune us, and the word that will improve the strain of that fruit if we will give that word its a power within our lives. So in that chapters that we have been considered this morning, we see the final destiny of the ecclesia, we see the vineyard springing forth, producing its fruit, and filling the whole world with the results of what it has produced for the husbandman in the heavens. May it be that as we give ourselves to these things, the word of God, and as we try to build into our lives the principles 
of Jesus Christ, that we too at this time will produce fruit that will ensure us a place in that glorious future, clearly and beautifully expressed by Isaiah the prophet on the foundation of the very things that he was able to see in his day and generation.